Good morning. If, if you would turn to the book of, of Titus, please. It's on page 998, if you're going to use one of the Bibles under the chairs. Page 998. We're going to be looking today at Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. And as always, uh, those, uh, the Bibles under your chairs are for not just your using today, but if you have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, and you want to take one of those with you, that's another reason they're there, so feel free to take that with you if you need a copy of God's Word. Let's, uh, let's start off and read the passage. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I'd like to take a moment and and pray and a few moments of a few moments of silence uh, to pray on your own. And I would just ask that everybody um, pray and ask that God would speak to you through His Word this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, because that is His desire. Much like the song we just sang, that He speak to you today through the written Word of God by the power of His Spirit. So pray that for yourself. Pray that for maybe somebody you're here with, uh, for the, for us as a body. And then uh, I'll close this and we'll begin. So let's pray together. Father, we come as we've, as we've sung about, as, as Dan uh, has prayed. Lord, we come to your written word, which you have preserved through the ages because you have set your love on us, and you want yourself to get glory. And I pray today that you would speak to all of us, speak to me as we look at your word. And as we hear from you, expectantly as we hear from you, would you help us to walk in obedience? We know there's a danger of hearing and not doing. Would you help us to be a doer of your word and walk and be faithful and obedient to what you tell us. We thank you, God, that you're good and that you're kind and that your mercy is new again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this morning, uh, this is the part, of, uh, the part of Titus that we're looking at this morning is titled Greeting. Uh, most Bibles, uh, not just the Bible that you have today, but most Bibles are probably going to announce it as greeting. And this is the part where we're prone to rush through, thinking that the rest of the letter is really the meat of the letter, and I'm, I'm guilty of that as anybody. We think, we think this, yeah, Paul might say a good thing or two, but the real beneficial part is when Paul starts giving us instructions about what we need to do. Uh, but but always, almost always before Paul gives instruction to any church, if you look at his letters, he always begins with the gospel and sets the groundwork by introducing himself, his position, his purpose, and the character of God who he represents. And it's no different in Titus today. So 
if, if you think, okay, we'll get on through today and then we'll really get, get busy in Titus next week, you'll miss something perhaps really, really big. And so the greeting is the inspired word of God, just as the, the other passages are or the, the ending or the salutation. Uh, this one sentence today, and it is one sentence, Paul can get away with somehow writing some really, really long sentences with commas after commas and semicolons and colons. My English teacher in high school would just have, she would have marked it up with red all over the place, but I guess Paul has, has an excuse that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he wrote it in a different language so we can, we can have those. But it is one long sentence and, um, but packed with so much truth. This one sentence in the Bible answers today the author of who it is and his role, the purpose of the letter or the what, the audience he is addressing, should be the church in Crete and the character of God he's representing. And the main point today, the main point in Titus 1, 1 through 4, is like Paul, believers, you and I, have been entrusted and set apart for the proclamation of the gospel which brings about godliness. The main point is like Paul, believers have been entrusted and set apart for the proclamation of the gospel which brings about godliness. So... Let's dive into it. The timeline context, based mainly upon verse 5, which will be someone else next week. This, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So on that phrase alone, and amidst others, but that's a big one, Paul likely wrote Titus during a fourth missionary journey that was not recorded in the book of Acts for some reason. Writing from an unknown location, Paul is instructing Titus on how to lead the churches on the island of Crete. The island is still known by, still known by the same name today and is a part of modern-day Greece. It's important to note that when Paul wrote a letter like the ones we just went through and finished in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he wasn't just writing to Timothy. And today he's not just writing to Titus, but he wrote a letter. He had in mind who these letters would be read to. He had in mind the church, who they would be read to. And so just as he had in mind the church in Crete, who this letter would be read to, he has in mind today, again, over 2,000 years later, through the power of the Spirit, Believer's Church in Hannibal, Missouri. Paul, it says, a servant of God. Verse 1 starts out with Paul introducing himself by simply stating his name, and that's something easy to gloss over, but he doesn't use Saul, which was his first name, because he's been converted, and we know that he was converted and changed his name to Paul. And so it's even intentional that he uses his name Paul because he's new, and he is set apart to proclaim the gospel now to non-Jews. That's what he was called to do, or Gentiles, which is pretty much anybody who wasn't a Jew. Um, this, is, this is what it signifies. And then Paul wants Titus and the church in Crete to know that the first and foremost, he is a servant of God, or as we've heard in other uh, passages, really a better translation is slave. Servant is really... Uh, a too light of a word uh, in this translation. Uh, I think the ESV probably uses it along with other translations is because when we think of slavery, we think of the involuntary kind. We think of the kind that is uh, really, really bad, often one ethnic group oppressing and treating another ethnic group or another uh, uh, person of color very, very uh, disgracefully. And um, this kind of slavery that we think of as often detestable and is clearly a form of evil, and the Bible never approves of this kind of slavery. 
And that's not the kind we're talking about. That's not the kind that Paul is, is describing himself. In contrast, however, a slave in the Old Testament and in Paul's day was very common. It was, but it was very different. It was voluntary as opposed to involuntary. One was forced. One was oppressive. One was, I need this. And it was a mutual benefit uh, by both parties. Oftentimes, slaves realized that their lives were much better off in many respects as a slave. Sure, there were, ex- there were, there were definitely exceptions of, of hard and oppressive taskmasters, people that did not treat their slaves uh, rightly, but that was often the exception. Um, many slaves had shelter, they had clothing, they had food through the family that owned them. Otherwise, they wouldn't. And the family was helped greatly by the slave for the many tasks that, that he would help with. Life was a hard and a voluntary slave was a valuable commodity. When a person voluntarily chose to be a slave for their own good, they were giving up their rights completely and acknowledging that they were now another's. Okay, they were giving up their rights and acknowledging that they were now another's. Or as, ES, as the ESV's Bible study, uh, or study Bible puts it, a slave did not act on his own authority, but on the authority of his master. Many people also sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. And uh, you might be familiar with uh, the Old Testament models. When six years had expired for them, they were allowed to be free. Uh, and, and when the debt was paid, some, however, would realize how good they had it as a slave after six years. And in that seventh year, rather than choose to be free, they would choose to go back to their owner and basically choose to be a, remain a slave of that owner for the rest of their lives. And that's when we get in a very, to us, a very odd uh, time where they would go to their priest and they would have an all, which I don't know what an all looks like, but I, I think of something very painful when I think of it, pressed through their earlobes, signifying that they would be a slave for the rest of their life. So that's something that somebody said, I want this. These are the benefits of being a slave. So to understand what Paul's talking about, we have to think that he's saying a slave of God because that's the right translation and it's not a bad word and it's not full of negative connotations like we often think. Uh, so this is what Paul is using when he says servant of God. Because, because of this, it's not an accident that Paul introduces himself this way and calls himself a slave of God before anything else. He could have chosen a lot of things to say and had tacked that on at the end, but he chose to say that first for a reason. Paul had completely given up his rights. This is the guy who wrote in Acts 20, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is the guy that that wrote in 1 Corinthians, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all or a slave to all that I might win more of them. And in Galatians 1, he said, For I am now seeking the, am, am I now, so it's a form of a question, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, when I'm looking through this this past week, I don't necessarily think of that when I think of being a servant. I think of more of helping somebody out, physically helping them, and certainly that includes that. But this, Paul takes it a bit of di- a different direction here in Galatians. He says, If If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant or slave of Christ. And uh, we just sang, we sang this morning, I have no other master, my heart shall be thy throne. That's what it means to be a slave. This This definition is at the heart of what it means to be a servant or slave of God. 
So uh, looking at that passage in Galatians just a little bit longer, do you want a measuring stick on, on what it is to be a slave or to be a servant? If, if so, I think this last statement Paul makes in Galatians is it. Paul's context here was that in the preceding verses, he was basically calling out people in the church for preaching a false gospel. And that he, he said that he, he would let them be accursed. In fact, he said, let them be accursed if anybody's preaching a gospel other than Jesus Christ. That is harsh language. That is uh, correction and rebuke possibly at a, at a really high level. In that... The context is, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He had another master. He did not have to please the people in the church he was writing to. That wasn't his first aim. It was God. So, um, and that could, in our context, could be similar. Maybe we're called to say something really hard to someone in love, confronting them some, about something that we need to. And that is certainly something that we... we uh, can find ourselves in in life, but I also think that uh, in the in, thinking about it this way is helpful. How easily inflated do you get with compliments from others? How easily are you inflated when you're complimented or affirmed by others? And the flip side of that, how easily are you deflated when you're criticized by others? Do you pursue self commendation? In other words, uh, do you go out? Do you go out of your way to hear "Good job," "Well done"? And get affirmation whenever possible. I know that, and I know I'll share with you, I'll know that when I look at my heart, I'm way too easily inflated by compliments and way too easily deflated by, by uh, criticism. Uh, I can put on an exterior where those things don't bother me, but if I look in my heart, which, the, which God makes me do, thankfully, I see that I'm way, I'm way uh, uh, inflated and deflated and, and improperly at times. And there's... Uh, Sure, there's a thing such as biblical encouragement and biblical rebuke, and we need both. And there's a time to uh, feel encouraged and a time to feel down about something in a healthy way. But it's how my heart responds to these things that, de- that really determines who I'm serving. Uh, Paul says being a servant or slave of God is about seeking the approval of God. So think of it in, that, in those terms. And the good news is that we already have approval in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the news. In Christ, we stand approved. Uh, if, if only I, if only you, if only we believe this, we would live as a slave of God that he wants us to be. He owns us. We are his slaves. In fact, a person can't really serve Christ in any role without first being a voluntary slave of God. So let's uh, continue on in verse 1. It says, "...and a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ." Apostle simply means one who is sent. Uh, one commentary said it well. The word apostle came to be used of a delegate or messenger sent on a mission with authoritative credentials as the personal representative of another. As an illustration, it was used of an admiral of a, an admiral of a fleet sent out by the king on special assignment. In the New Testament, the word apostle is used in two different ways. Uh, the 12 apostles, of course, are are uh, the 12 disciples that became apostles after the resurrection of Christ. And, and those kinds of apostles, were, there were three requirements. They had to witness the resurrection. They had to be explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit. And they had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. And the second way, though, and this is the way that Paul uses it here, is that apostle can be used in a generic sense, much like our term mission, missionary or messenger, or again, one who is sent out. So Paul uses this office of apostle to begin his letter 
uh, even to the Romans, and it really helps to define what he's talking about. He says in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, comma, set apart for the gospel of God. So just like Paul isn't just a servant, but a servant of God, so Paul isn't just an apostle, but an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ. In one sense, we are not apostles who have seen Jesus physically, like Jesus' disciples uh, named in Matthew 10. We're not that. But in another sense, we are called out to be an apostle for Jesus Christ, just like Paul. I know some of us are used to hearing things like, we represent him wherever we go. But do we, do I, do we really understand, do you really understand if we have believed in Christ and have been redeemed, we are sent ones? Or we are apostles in this generic sense, wherever we are. We don't use the word to... We don't use the word apostle to describe ourselves much in everyday conversation, right? You don't really sign off. You might sign off your brother or your sister in Christ, but not too many people are saying you're apostle, Jason. Uh, it's, just, it's just not the language that we use. Uh, but maybe we should. Maybe we should, at least internally, to think about what we've been called to do. Maybe we wake up in the morning and think of ourselves as apostles would help. Maybe it would prod us to take sharing the gospel more seriously. Maybe it would make us more attentive to share Jesus, who he is and what he has done in everyday life, rather than waiting for that perfect time, waiting for that mission trip, waiting for that maybe missional community gathering, which is great. Maybe reading this passage with your name in place of Paul would be a way to infuse in your heart that you've been called, sent out, set apart for the proclamation of the gospel as an apostle in that generic sense. So for Paul, it was both being a slave and also a messenger or apostle of Jesus Christ. Serving human needs is a good thing, but if it isn't done in Jesus' name, it misses the whole point. Be a slave and share Christ. Be a slave and share Christ. The gospel is the reason you and we as a body are called to be slaves of God. We're not just called to be slaves of God, to be good people. We are called to be his messenger. Uh, verse 1, continuing, this is the part where Paul makes it very clear who he exists to be a slave and apostle for Jesus Christ. He says, he says, this is who it's for, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So Paul is saying he is a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the purpose of preserving, strengthening, and upholding the faith of God's elect. And God's elect, which is a language he uses, okay, so if the question is, do you believe in uh, election, it's hard to say um, you don't when it appears in God's word on many occasions. God's elect simply means that those who have responded by faith and who will respond to who Jesus is and what he's done. That's all it means. It's another name for chosen ones. It's another name for believers. It's another name for the redeemed. It's another name for saved. But here he uses the word elect. God's elect, according to another uh, commentary I read, I thought was really helpful. He says, this is an expression that embodies a true balance between the divine initiative, what God is doing, he, what he initiates, and the human response. Although surrounded with mystery, the biblical teaching on election is for believers and is intended as a practical truth. It assures faithful, struggling believers that their salvation is all of God from beginning to end. And Paul cares about their knowledge of the truth for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul cared deeply about his people believing the gospel by faith and never to remain intellectually 
ignorant. Paul wants us to think deeply over spiritual truths. A mark of a healthy church is one that is committed to the teaching and applying of God's Word. And uh, one reason we often go through books like we're doing right now is because we're forced to deal with hard passages and and we're called to be uh, students of the Word, teachers of the Word, even when it's even when it's difficult. This is the way Paul expresses his desire for God's elect to grow in knowledge. He says in Colossians 1, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This was his prayer for us. And we're going to look at verse 2 in Titus soon, which is a list of... of, uh, Important things that knowledge we need, not only to know, but to believe. But Paul doesn't let us stop with just learning facts about God. It's not just about knowledge. Let's list these facts and learn knowledge for knowledge's sake. But it's, it's about adding at the end of verse 1 in Titus, which accords with godliness. He does not uh, stay with knowledge too long with immediately going in which accords with godliness. He knows the connection is inseparable. And he wants us to know it. True faith in Christ and knowledge of God always produces godliness. To the extent that you actually believe something is to the extent that you change. It's not good enough to hear information, but you must believe it. And this happens in everyday life more than we realize. Uh, Students, I know we have a lot of college students, probably some high school students, but students, let's say your instructor says that your final exam coming up is worth 50% of your grade. If you believe the instructor saying that, you're going to respond a certain way. Probably, right? If you don't believe your instructor means what he says or what means what she says, that it's 50% of the grade, probably going to blow it off, right? Because naturally, we do what we believe to be true. Uh, another example for some uh, kids that might still be in here. Legos. If your parents say to pick up your Legos, or you'll have them taken away for a week, Right, kids? If you believe if you believe your mom, your dad, whoever's telling you that will actually follow through with that, you're probably going to respond and your action is going to be based upon what you believe about that to be true. Right? Um, how about um, if, you're on a, if you're on an athletic team and you have a playoff game coming up, your, season's, your regular season has ended, you're getting ready to go to a, a, some kind of postseason competition where this is it. If you win... You continue to play. If you lose, all of the hard work for the last months and all of uh, your goals that you had set come to a very screeching halt. They're done. And your coach says, all right, this week for practice, because next week's game is very important, this is, this is it. This is how we need to prepare. This is We're going to have to work harder. We're going to have to focus. We're going to have to do things uh, and heighten our level of attentiveness in every, every respect to be able to perform because this game matters. Are we going to believe our coach? Are we going to believe that person in that moment? If we do, we'll probably respond accordingly. If we don't, we'll respond a different way. The point is, our actions follow what we believe. We can say we believe 15 things, but if we do two of them, those are the two things we actually believe. Okay? It's true with these examples, but how much more true is it for the human heart that's been redeemed and made new in Christ? That's what Paul means when he says... In 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
Godliness does not earn us right standing before God. Godliness shows we have right standing before God. Godliness doesn't earn us right standing, but godliness shows we have right standing before God because of who Jesus is and what he's done. If we believe what God says to be true, we'll make decisions accordingly. And when we fail, which we will in this life, we'll remember that we have been approved by God because of Christ, and that will be our motivation to pursue godliness. Paul continues in verse 2, and he says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So now Paul is saying that everything he has laid up to this point, his ministry, his apostleship to God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, it all rests on the fact that there's hope in eternal life, that the perfect life, the horrible death of the crucifixion, one of the most inhumane ways the Romans could come up with for a person to die, and the resurrection of Jesus did indeed conquer and overcome the effects of sin and death. And so as we've studied more fairly recently, this hope is not just wishful thinking. It's not hoping everything works out in the end. Uh, The word hope in this contrast or in this context is an absolute expectation and anticipation. It's absolute. How many things in life have an absolute expectation and anticipation? How many things can you think of? Uh, And if you thought of something, if you think about it a little bit longer, you probably quickly came to the conclusion that no, that one doesn't count. Well, maybe that one, well, no, that one doesn't count because there is nothing that is absolutely certain in this life that we live uh, in, terms of, in terms of life and the things that we often think of as uh, uh, occasions to celebrate. Graduation, marriage, career, having kids, someone close to us coming to know Christ. None of these are certain and all have many variables that can keep them from becoming reality. Unforeseen circumstances like cancer, unemployment, war, divorce, and many other effects of our broken world make everything in life uncertain. However certain you feel life is today for you, because maybe things are in a, fair, in a, a decent order, however certain they feel, they're really not. The only thing that's certain is that we not only have eternal life in the future, but we have it now. John three thirty six promises, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He doesn't say whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life, but he says he has it. So you have eternal life now if you believe in Christ. It's something to hope in now, not just when that day when we physically die. Eternal life isn't just something we look forward to obtaining one day. Uh, and this comes after godliness in the passage because eternal life is isn't just something that makes a difference for the future. It's meant to produce change in how we live now. And for the believer, this hope is absolutely certain. And Paul wants to continue in verse 2, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. The Bible is one huge story of promises over and over again that God answers over and over again. Who he is, his very character, means that he is unable to lie. His perfect His perfection and holiness does not allow him to. God is truth. This is Paul stating the obvious. But he knows the churches at Crete need to hear that again. And God in his wisdom and love for us, he knew that we need to hear that again and again. So that's why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it. Church, today we need to hear that God never lies. Paul wants us to know 
The gospel wasn't plan B after the human race first sinned in Genesis 3. The promise to redeem and reconcile man to himself was in the mind and heart of God in eternity past. And, and he says it promised before the ages began. It's another way of saying before the foundation of the world. And that is a hard concept to get my mind around. John 17, uh, 24, a father, Jesus says this, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. First Peter says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And at this point in the passage, Paul becomes more specific about his function and responsibility as a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 3, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So after describing the necessity of knowing God as a giver of eternal life, as the one who never lies, as the one who always keeps his promises, Paul wants the focus to be the message that, he's been, that has been revealed in his word. That's what he's shifting to. It's the message. Though eternal life was purposed and settled before the ages began, God had a specified, proper, and specific time to manifest through the preaching of his son. And manifest simply means to make clear, to make very distinctively, or to show distinctively. Paul has been entrusted by the command our God of our Savior to preach this word. And you and I have been entrusted by the same command to preach the word. Again, as I said in the beginning, this is us, also known as sharing the gospel. When you hear the word preaching, I still, when I hear the word preaching, I still have a picture in my mind of somebody standing up like I'm doing now, proclaiming God's word. And as important as that is, that's not just what Paul has in mind. He has preaching of the word in the sense of sharing the gospel, being the call for all believers. Do you believe the message that you've been entrusted with? Because you've been entrusted with that if you've put your hope in Christ, just like Paul has. Do you believe that? If you do, you will look for ways to share the gospel of the good news for who Jesus is and what he's done. In verse 4, Paul finally addresses a specific person to who he is writing. He says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. It's likely that Titus came to believe in Christ through Paul's ministry to him. Uh, Titus is not biologically related to Paul, but Paul refers to Titus as a family member in the fullest sense. He says, My true child in a common faith. Jesus Christ is who they have in common, and that's enough to have the family relationship. Paul concludes his greeting to Titus and to us in verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And that is a very, very common phrase that Paul uses to continue on with the rest of the letter. Not just this letter, but almost every other letter that he wrote. And again, something that we easily can gloss over. Grace comes before peace on purpose. There's no peace without grace. There must be undeserved favor extended and accepted and believed in order for for peace to result. Grace comes before peace. 
And neither grace nor peace can exist without each other. It's impossible for grace not to produce peace, and it's impossible for true peace not to come from grace. It's impossible for grace not to produce peace, and it's impossible for true peace not to come from grace. If you don't have peace with God, you have either unconfessed sin as a believer or you've never put your trust in Christ. If you've never put your trust in Christ and you're here today, you can ask almost anyone here, and they would love to talk to you about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember that peace isn't just an absence of conflict or not just an absence of adversity. In fact, becoming a follower of Christ actually increases both of those things, conflict and adversity. But it's a deep-seated belief that your sin, what's inside of you that wants to go your own way, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And that, and that you build your life on the promise of the gospel, on what he did, not what you can do. Romans 8, what, shall then, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's believing that. That's the kind of peace Paul's talking about. Or in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every human being has a need. It's your need, it's my need. Every human that is born, their greatest need is grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So, Let's conclude with the main point of the passage. It's like Paul, believers have been entrusted and set apart for the proclamation of the gospel, which brings about godliness. Godliness is a product of being a recipient of grace and peace. Let's pray together. God, we, we thank you that for the grace and the peace that you've given us in your Son. We thank you for that you are the initiator that we naturally want nothing to do with you. We naturally want to go our own way and will every time. But we thank you that at the right time, you sent Jesus Christ and died for the ungodly. And we thank you that our sins have been paid for. And we know that the gospel, which accords with godliness, is meant to have that effect. So would you help us as a church body to to realize that and pursue godliness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ and care about the message being proclaimed. Father, would you help us by your Spirit to love as you've loved, to have compassion as you've had compassion on us. And we thank you for your love for us and that we don't love you without you first extending it to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.